The following audio content is a talk given at the Inn, a college ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theinnseattle.org. We invite you to join us each Tuesday at 9 p.m. on the corner of 16th and 47th in Seattle's U District. Well, allow me to add my welcome to you. My name is Ryan Church, one of the guys on staff here at the Inn and UPC. Great that we can be together again on a, on a Tuesday night. Uh, happy that so many of you are here as we uh, work through the middle of the corner, quarter. Um, hey, I want to start uh, tonight by asking you, what comes, what comes to your mind when you hear uh, the word that we're going to be focusing on tonight, and that's kingdom? What comes to mind when you, when you hear this word kingdom? I asked the in-speaking team, this, this group of students that helps uh, Janie and I out with, with crafting the talks that we do here, and one of the first uh, responses was, responses was uh, the movie Kingdom of Heaven with Orlando Bloom and Liam Neeson. Okay, that, that's one thought. Of course, there's the, the, the answer of, of when you think of kingdom, you think of castles with lots of, of land around them. Some of the others might be thinking, oh, hey, castles, maybe it's something like Minecraft. Some there, maybe there's some gamers uh, uh, in the room here. Uh, one person said Lion King, which makes a lot of sense to me, right? You know, well, I just can't wait to be king. Okay, good kingdom. Yeah, good, yeah. You see, get fired up. I like that. Um, but for me, really, all of this comes together in my Probably my first perception of kingdom would, of course, be Disneyland. The, that is, of course, the magic kingdom. And the first time I got to go to Disneyland, I was five years old. And of course, Disneyland has everything that we just talked about that we could bring together, and maybe a, a little bit more. Of course, Disneyland does have a big castle, but it doesn't just have a castle. It has trains and, and spaceships. It has pirates and tree houses. Uh, and it has... Uh, of course, it has, I uh, showed this picture earlier, uh, it has Tweedledee and Tweedledum, which scared the crap out of me as a five-year-old. I mean, look at those grins. If those two dudes came up to you when you were five, what would you do? I ran the other way and cried. Okay, my mom got a great, uh, a great picture of it. But for me, a kid, five years old from a small town whose parents had, had recently divorced, there was something awesome about going to Disneyland. This place where everything just seemed right. I could, I could run around where there were, and, and it was like, a, like an adventure. There was great food. Somebody would actually come and clean up after you. It just seemed perfect. There's really, really no worries that I, that I had there. And there was this prevailing feeling of, oh man, this is the way that I want life to be. It is not going to get any, any better than this. In this place, in this magic kingdom, everything is going to be okay. Everything is going to be okay. It's honestly the first memory that I have of, of where, where I, can, I can say, in that moment, I was happy. I was happy because everything felt like it was going to be okay. Ultimately, I think that that's what we are all after. There is a sense of we want everything to be okay. 
We want to be in a kingdom where everything is going to be okay. And in fact, we live in a culture of empire builders. It's one of the reasons that so many of you in this room are students, that you're, you're agonizing over a decision on what to major in so that you can uh, pursue a, a good job that is going to help you get the, the, the resources that you need to make sure that in your kingdom, everything is going to be okay. This desire for everything to be okay is a huge part of who we are. We spend a ton of time essentially pursuing my kingdom come. Well, tonight we want to continue a series that we've been doing through the Old Testament. Um, where, and tonight we come to this place where we first hear about this kingdom. Uh, we hear about the kings of Israel. And a lot of the themes that we have been talking about uh, come together as we first hear about these kings and what God has promised and endowed to them. But before we take a look at this, let's, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we uh, come tonight because we want everything to be okay. Um, and we come because we are, are seeking to, to find a way to make that possible. Uh, and there is something in each of us, a gut feeling perhaps, Lord, just a deep longing uh, that somehow we might find, find that answer in you, in your kingdom. And so as we come to your word tonight, we ask that you would help us uh, and that you would assure us Lord, indeed, you would be with us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, let me do a brief review of where we've been so far this quarter. Because, again, I think so many of these themes come together. We have a timeline that we can throw up. For those of you that are systematic thinkers that like dates, you're going to love this. We go back to 2100 BC and the first week that we talked about Abraham. And Abraham was given a promise about a particular land that you would be blessed to be a blessing, that the whole world would be blessed through your descendants. Well, those descendants ended up enslaved in Egypt. And eventually, uh, as we heard through, through Moses, they were delivered from that slavery under Pharaoh um, into Egypt, or out of Egypt, into first the wilderness. And it was there that God provided for these people. Uh, and they spent a lot of time out there, 40 years, before they finally get to enter the promised land. Well, as they are entering the promised land, uh, they, uh, as we talked about last week, renewed this covenant. The co these, this covenant that had come down that essentially said, this is how you are to be my people. This is how you are to be different. As you go into this promised land, because, oh, by the way, there are people in this promised land. There's already a group of people there, and you can live among them. This is a good land for you to live, but I am counting on you to be different. And that's where we pick up our, our story tonight, that at the end of this, this period of judges uh, comes a man named Samuel. And, and after all these judges had provided kind of temporary leadership, Samuel uh, is this guy who was a good guy. He was a faithful guy. He was obedient to God. And he really led this people through an encounter with these other people in this promised land that were bigger, stronger, faster than they were. Well, in all of this, 
as the people of Israel are looking around and seeing all of these people who are already in the promised land, they begin recognizing, oh, crap, we are different. We just arrived here, and we seem to be the only ones that don't have a king. There's a prevailing desire and fascination to desire this king. Yet it was them not having that king that was precisely one of the things that made them different. As we talked about last week when we talked about covenant, essentially what the people did in that moment was, was say, God, you will be our king, and we will allow you to be that, and we will be your people. Well, a little bit later, uh, the people are complaining to Samuel, and Samuel was one who had a, a special relationship with, with God as a priest. And, he, and uh, we are told this in 1 Samuel 8, 4 to 9. So, so the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramon. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as the other nations have. Okay, so they revere Samuel as a great leader, but they recognize our leader is going to be gone pretty soon and we need a different solution. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So we prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. And be assured, it's not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, says the Lord. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know that the king who will reign over them will claim them as his rights. The passage that goes on here uh, for, for another 20 or so verses, Samuel gives them warnings. He essentially says, look, this new king is going to take your wives. He's going to tax you. He's going to, to really clean house on your resources and take them for himself. Essentially, a king will enslave you. Now, keep in mind, this is a people that had been rescued from slavery and the covenant was, I will be your king and keep you from that. And the warning is, okay, I'll give you a king. Uh, but you're going to end up in precisely the, the condition that I already came to deliver you from. Yet there is this incredible uh, desire, if not fascination, for a king. Okay, now that's something that we can maybe understand a little bit about, but it can also be a bit of a foreign concept. I mean, here we are sitting in the United States of America in 2013. We don't necessarily get the idea of kings and royals. Yet there is a prevailing fascination that we can identify, right? I mean, let's think about the, the, the House of Cambridge, the British royals. Um, 900 years of continuity, okay? Yet, they don't have any power, really, at this point. And yet, check this out, by some estimations, when, uh, oh, what's his name, Prince William and Kate got married, some estimations say that three and a half billion people tuned into that wedding one way or another. 
Okay, let's put this in perspective. There are 7 billion people on the planet. That means one in every two people checked into this royal wedding simply out of fascination. Okay, how many people, how many people tuned in? Be honest. Okay, that, it, what, who raises their hand here? You know, it stays here. Don't worry about it. Okay. Now, to me, that isn't one and two, but the statistics say that 20, that over 24 million Americans watched it. And so there, there really is this, while we don't necessarily get this whole idea, this whole, this whole desire for a king as people who live in a democracy, um, there is certainly a fascination. Now, one of the ways that we might get it is simply as capitalists. I know that for me, I'm tempted to think that, that what the royals essentially do is fuel an entire industry, and that industry is called tabloids. Okay, the other industry that apparently some people think that they're going to fuel is an industry called Halloween. Okay, it's anticipated that this, that Prince George, um, is going to be one of the most popular wedding, or not wedding, but Halloween costumes, uh, coming up here in a couple of days. So there's the one strategy of having the full kit. Okay, there's everything that you need to be, uh, William, Kate, and, and the baby. A, you know, a lot of people are saying, hey, we think that these guys might actually uh, give Miley a run for her money in terms of most popular Halloween costume, okay? which, uh, you know, all biases aside, I would probably recommend to you, you know, lest Halloween turn into a twerk fest or whatever. Okay? <laughs> then, there's, then I love on the bottom, if you just want to be, if you just want to go as, as Prince George, uh, that dude, that's a dude from Dallas. <laughs> that, you know, just threw a sash over him that says George. So that's probably the cheaper way to go about your being a royal for Halloween. Okay? We don't necessarily get what it means to be a king, but certainly there is part of us that can connect with a fascination. And certainly we can connect with the desire that was being articulated by the people of Israel that everything would be okay. And the people that were asking for this king seemingly thought that that would be a better way to get there. And so Samuel goes out to find a king. And we are introduced to this guy named Saul. Now, Saul was, was a guy that had, uh, had a little bit of a military reputation uh, that the people saw as a fitting king. And he ends up being found by Samuel and is anointed as the king. And he's kind of, he's, he's really kind of the people's guy, but he quickly messes up. And he really becomes that guy that lives into all the warnings that the Lord had given Samuel, that Samuel had subsequently uh, delivered to the people. And what does he do? As the king of the people who are set aside to be different, essentially Samuel becomes like every other king, or not Samuel, I'm sorry, Saul, becomes like every other king that is out there. And so the word comes to Samuel that a change is necessary. And essentially, the Lord uh, says to Samuel, I want you to find a king, but not a king like everyone else. And so the word that comes to Samuel to give to Saul is this. 1 Samuel 13 says, your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. 
And so a search begins. So we've, we've heard from Samuel. We got Saul as the first king of Israel. He fails. And now the search for a new one begins. And the thesis of this search, of course, is if my people are to be different, we need to find a different kind of king. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, this is the Lord speaking to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that human beings look at, but people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Well, after a bit of a process, Samuel finds a shepherd the youngest in his family, and his name is David. And David proves to be different. And what we hear in the balance of of 1 Samuel and into 2 Samuel is that this David, this shepherd, this youngest in his family line, turns out to be the ideal king that is described as that man after God's own heart. And David leads this people, Israel, to the high point of their history. He, David is the king that to this day, way off of that timeline that we looked at earlier, that is, it is David's area, era that is most celebrated. That is the glory day of Israel. The country is united. It is the, at the peak of their power. And so the Lord comes to David to make what? A covenant. And this covenant says this. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish, I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. By the way, the, the, um, the people being talked to, this is, is the Lord talking to the prophet Nathan who will deliver this to David. So that's why the the pronouns could be a little bit confusing. This is a message to David delivered from Nathan. Goes on to say this in verse 14. I, the Lord, will be David's father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure before me. Your throne will be established forever. Okay, does this sound familiar? This is really, uh, this captures all the themes that we've talked about in this quarter leading up to this point. This is a covenant. There's a mutual responsibility here. The Lord is saying, I will be with you. You build a house. I will dwell, dwell with you. There's deliverance. There is a pr- the, the deliverance from Israel's and David's enemies. There's provision that the Lord will raise up from David's line the right people to lead. And then, of course, the, the biggest promise that I can see in there is the last word forever. Forever. This kingdom. This kingdom. But whose kingdom is it? Well, what happens? 
from, from this point, the high point of Israel, the big point that even now everybody waves the, waves the flag about, only one chapter later, this story disintegrates into murder, adultery, really bad parenting on the part of David, and this kingdom that was, uh, that was glorified, that was unified, that was powerful, eventually sinks into chaos. It divides and turns into a, a messy disaster that all but disappears. So David gets this great promise, and then he doesn't live into what God may have had for him. He certainly doesn't live into being that man after God's own heart. So this kingdom that has been established in the Old Testament, that has been promised that will last forever. Second Samuel 7. So what? Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, let's fast forward because this kingdom and this covenant that God made with David is fulfilled. God makes good on his covenant, on his promise, in the person of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Matthew points out that what we have in Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, and there's this big, boring genealogy that is there to prove to you that God has made good on this promise. In Jesus, the kingdom of God came to heaven it, it, it dwelt among us, this kingdom. It lived. This kingdom died in, and rose again and then poured the spirit of this kingdom into each of us. The kingdom of God is already here. It's here now. It's still with us. God has made good on his promise. And this theme that started in the Old Testament, this whole idea of, of kingdom, it's kind of a small blip in the Old Testament, and it's the dominant theme of the New Testament. This theme of kingdom resounds throughout, so much so that when Jesus teaches us how to pray, Matthew 6, 9 to 13, many of you are familiar with this prayer. It's known as the Lord's Prayer. And it says this, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then he says this, your kingdom come, your will be done. Okay, it gives us a, uh, uh, basically a, a pattern on how to pray. Later on, he goes on to say, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. What I want you to connect to tonight is simply this. Okay, and I want to unpack this just a little bit before we sing a few more songs. It's easy for us to think about the kingdom of God as something that is out there. It's easy for us to hear this story from the Old Testament and think about, oh, this whole idea of kingdom is something that was back there. What I want us to recognize tonight is that this, this promise, this covenant of thy kingdom this kingdom promised to David that has found fulfillment 
in the person and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is here right now, and it matters. How does it matter? So what? Why does it matter? Okay, let's go back to the theme that caused the Lord to rebuke Israel. He's going to enslave you. Why I think that the kingdom of God that is here right now matters for us is because it sets us free. The kingdom of God that is present sets us free. It sets us free from the pressures of the kingdom of this world that are often upon us. Okay, but how? How do we live into this freedom? A couple of things. One is simply let God be the king and let you be you. Okay, don't, this is, this is not about pursuing my kingdom come as much as my kingdom come might be pretty sweet, nor is it about uh, capitulating to the, what, what this world would say is the kingdom that you should pursue. At uh, Janie's prompting, I, I took a look at the lyrics from a song that many of you have become familiar with because it's been at the top of the charts for several weeks now. Um, uh, this song from Lords called Royals. And, and this song is, is a, a, a song that it's, it's really kind of a meta song it, it, where, where Lords is singing about what is being sung about. And I mean, you guys, you guys know the lyrics to this song, you know, where she says, but every song's like gold teeth, gray goose, tripping in the bathroom, bloodstains, ball ground, trash in the to- hotel room. We don't care. We're driving Cadillacs in our dreams, but everybody's like crystal, Maybach, diamonds in your timepiece, jet planes, islands, tigers on a gold leash, we don't care. We're not caught up in your love affair, and we'll never be royals. We don't, you know, run in our blood. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. See? I might not be speaking next week, but I might lead worship instead. What I love about, is, is I reflected on those lyrics, and as Lords is, is uh, kind of singing about what she hears in other songs, and what those other songs are painting is a picture of the good life. It's painting a picture of the kingdom that's being pursued, and this song, to my ears, is a bit of a protest of saying, we're not going to do that. That is, that is to, to put it in the language of what we're talking about here, that is not going to be the kingdom that I am going to pursue. Instead, I'm going to seek a different kind of buzz, and that buzz is to be exactly who I am in the place that I am in the time that I am. The kingdom of God is already. And it sets you free from having to bow down to any other kind of king And what it really does is sets you free from having to somehow pursue being the king of your own kingdom. So it is first the relief from having to, from the pressures of having to live into anyone else's kingdom. And then second, it's the relief from having to live into your own kingdom. Um, C.S. Lewis is, uh, is, a, is a great uh, scholar, theologian that once wrote that hell 
is the place where the only voice that you ever hear is your own. Um, we are set free from our own kingdom. Often, practically in my life, I pursue a sense of my kingdom come instead of thy kingdom come. Let me give you an idea of what my kingdom looks like versus thy kingdom. In my kingdom, I get mine. I get whatever I want when I want it. In thy kingdom, you get yours. And everybody gets theirs. In my kingdom, I win and my enemies lose. Okay, which for those of us that are Husky fans, that's a pretty sweet kingdom to live in, okay? (laughs) Thy kingdom, we're called to pray for our enemies. It's not about my desires, it's about praying for my enemies. In my kingdom, I will be fed. In thy kingdom, others are fed. In my kingdom, I'm kept from suffering. In thy kingdom, we're rescued from suffering. In my kingdom, I'm seen and I get recognition. I am glorified. And in thy kingdom, it's done in secret. Thy kingdom sets us free from ourselves. And what I want you to to recognize um, about that second column, thy kingdom, is that what if I, what if you, what if we took thy kingdom and said, I can do that? Okay, all of these things are things that you can do. What if you started living for others? What if you started praying for your enemies? What if you started making it a priority to feed others? What if you came alongside people who were suffering? And what if we did a lot more in secret without needing to glorify ourselves. This uh, past week, uh, a, a living legend in these parts, no longer living, Don James, uh, former coach of the Huskies, uh, passed away. And one of, the, one of his great quotes is uh, when he would encourage his teams um, after wins by saying, look what happens when no one's concerned about who gets the credit. This was a guy that, that achieved all the success that can be achieved in his, in his realm as a college football coach. Look what can be accomplished when nobody cares about who gets the credit. You see, thy kingdom sets us free from ourselves as well and gets us focused on others. The kingdom is present. We don't usher it in but we participate in it. We don't have to be enslaved by anybody else's vision of the kingdom, and we don't need to be enslaved by ours. You know, there was that moment in Disneyland where it was the first time that I I can ever remember actually being happy, actually having a sense of, of this is the way life is supposed to be. And what I'm here to tell you is that the moments when I have experienced that same feeling since then have not come when I've been at the Magic Kingdom, have not come when I've been in conditions that were totally idyllic. The closest thing that I've had to those, those, that feeling of 
contentment and happy has been on times when I've been in Abate in the Dominican Republic where there are Haitian refugees and their families and their children that are starving. When I've been with a group of students that are wrestling with some of the the issues of poverty and injustice in the world and or when I've been in, in Haiti holding eight kids with AIDS in a rocking chair and having them fall asleep. You see, what's common in all of those moments is that I wasn't thinking about myself. I was set free from the tyranny of myself. And in so doing, I felt like I was getting to to draw near, to come close, in some ways to actually touch, see, feel, smell the kingdom of God that is present, even right now. Now, the good news is it's present even right now. And what I'm here to tell you is that there's still more to come. You see, the promise of the fulfillment of the kingdom of God is that what is going to happen, that we can taste just a little bit now, is that there is a place where there will be no more sickness. There will be complete healing and restoration. A place where mourning will be turned to dancing. There is a time when death will have no sting. The invitation is to hope, to hope that that's true and taste that now. The kingdom is present already, and there's even more when he comes again, that one day every knee would bow and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's good news for every single one of us. Let's pray. Lord, help us to be kingdom citizens. Help us to be kingdom citizens that do what we can, that get over ourselves and look outward. Lord, meet us in that place as we try to do it. Lord, thank you for your son, that legacy thrown from Abraham and from David uh, that shows us that your kingdom is a kingdom of grace, mercy, love, second, third, fourth, hundredth, thousandth chances, and that your invitation is to something more than we can ask or even imagine. Lord, be enthroned on the praises of your people as we continue to sing. Amen.